The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and Pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Tonight we will continue to address our viewer questions. We still have uh, several outstanding questions, and so I would like to get into some of these, Father. The first one has to do with papal infallibility. <clears throat> And uh, the question here reads, is the adherence to the heresy of modernism enough to make a man a doubtful pope because all of his actions and official documents are laced with it, thereby wrongly teaching the faithful by false ecumenism, false worship, and false laws? If this question is not too big in scope, could Father answer, were there specific things that each of the successive popes since 1958 did or said that would break the doctrine of infallibility? Well, in answer to the first question, uh, right at the top of my head, uh, I think it's important to realize there are there's a range of modernism. Okay, uh, one may accept modernist principles. Uh, that doesn't mean that at the moment he applies the modernist principles completely to everything. Uh, modernists can undergo a kind of development. Okay. Uh, there were modernists who signed on with the uh, the modernism of Vatican II and those who basically um, uh, were the architects of the uh, the invasion of the church and um, the uh, the council documents uh, those who those who uh, seeded those with modernism uh, actually represented quite a sizable number of people at the council and throughout the church. Well, Pius X, as you know, uh, found it necessary to condemn the errors of the modernists back in 1907 with the encyclical Pescendi. And uh, so by Vatican II, the modernists had gained a lot of, uh, a lot of stature in the church, especially uh, you know, with the ascendancy of John XXIII, uh, who was an out-and-out modern, modernist, okay? But uh, uh, the point that, I, uh, that I'm seeing is that uh, there are those who subscribe to the modernist principles, but who had not yet really thought them out completely, and uh, hadn't yet applied them to virtually every aspect of the faith. So you can have a, a kind of uh, beginning modernist who will enunciate the principles, but he hasn't yet drawn out all the conclusions and how they affect the faith. <clears throat> I think it's important to realize because there were those who, who began the, uh, the, the modernist uh, program, and then when they saw where it was leading, they were horrified by it. They saw that it led to a loss of faith. They saw that it led to blasphemy. They saw that it led to sacrilege. If it, if it just played out logically and, and, and the results of modernism began to show more and more, uh, you, you see people who are actually uh, 
abandoning the modernist principles, rejecting it, condemning it, and coming back to practice the traditional faith. I mean, let's face it, there were a, a goodly number of uh, priests um, who accepted the changes, and uh, perhaps some of them even with a certain amount of enthusiasm, but who in the course of time became very disenchanted with them. Uh, there was a philosopher, Jacques, Jacques Maritain, who uh, spoke very glowingly of the Council and all the promise of the Council and the new springtime of the Church and all the rest. But before he passed away, he was questioning the Council and its direction. And uh, as I understand it, questioning the modernism that animated um, Vatican II. And um, because he saw the consequences were very, not only bitter, but toxic. Um, and um, <clears throat> so the fact that uh, one does subscribe to modernist principles doesn't mean that he has gotten to the point quite yet that he has redefined the, uh, such essential words as faith. You know, I mentioned this, I think, last time we met, that a modernist could profess to believe all the doctrines of the Catholic faith. Uh, and could say so uh, with uh, sincerity, insofar as a modernist could be sincere. But he doesn't mean the same thing by belief. <laughs> uh, he's he's, he's redefined re, uh, what faith is. Uh, Pope Pius X makes this very clear in the encyclical of Pescendi when he, he talks about the modernist idea of faith and with the modernist as a believer. What does he actually consider belief? <coughs> so there, there are those who, who've uh, launched their ships, let's say, out on the sea of modernism, who have not yet uh, tasted the bitter fruits of modernism um, at the, the time of Vatican II. And uh, as soon as they saw where it led, they, um, in some cases, retreated from it and condemned it. Now, it is a, a tribute to St. Pius X um, to recognize that he saw the conclusion in the premises of modernism. He knew exactly what it was uh, right in, in the egg. You know? He knew what was going to hatch from that egg because of his wisdom, human and divine wisdom that he had as the Supreme Pontiff. He knew, he foresaw the bitter fruits of this, and he said this would be the undoing of all, everything we know as religion. <clears throat> and certainly the complexes of all of the heresies, that's, that's the very definition, you might say, of, of, uh, of apostasy. So he understood very well that this would lead to complete apostasy from the faith when played out to its ultimate end. And we've seen quite a number of examples of those who've actually played out modernist principles to the bitter end. And uh, where it leads them is exactly as St. Pius X said. It leads them to complete apostasy from the, from the faith. And the abandonment of anything we would even recognize as a religion, traditionally defined. So I would say, uh, it's because just because somebody enunciates some modernist principles does not automatically exclude him from the faith does not automatically exclude the faith from his, his heart and his mind. <clears throat> it will eventually, though. It is a poison that will work. I would say <clears throat> um, 
that uh, not everyone who has imbibed the poison is yet dead. <laughs> you know, I, I guess they put it that way. But they're dying. Something is happening to them that is very, very, very bad. Uh, now, Francis, on the other hand, is the, the ultimate modernist. It's hard imagining someone who more radically applies modernist principles to every aspect of his thought. Um, he's applying it to every aspect of the church's, of the church's thought, uh, all of her theology. He says he's not a theologian, and um, that, that's what the excuse he uses to pass the buck, uh, to let the others decide. But the fact is, uh, when Pope Pius X describes the modernist as theologian, he's describing Francis. And uh, the, this man... Even when he says something that is that is compatible with Catholicism, even when he says something that sounds somewhat pious, although he said so many things that are downright impious and offensive to pious ears, every now and then he's capable of saying something pious and something that corresponds to the Catholic faith. But we have to realize that the terminology he uses may sound very good in Catholic ears, but it's not necessarily what he understands. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have the same understanding that a Catholic would have in what he's saying. And that's why um, we've seen so often in the past that the modernists, um, John the Twenty Third, um, John Paul, uh, John, John the, uh, I'm sorry, John Paul the Sixth. Uh, John Paul II, and so on, and for and uh, Benedict too. You know, they they try to pretend that Benedict's not a modernist. He is. He died in the world modernist. One of the leading modernists of Vatican II. Um, they uh, we've seen this this go on throughout all these years now, since '58 when you know John the Twenty Third came into uh, into vogue uh, as good good Pope John, as though the others were not. <laughs> Um, but anyway, we've seen them contradict themselves, and we see this this constant uh, back and forth between uh, the the conservatives and the liberals. I mean, the whole idea of dividing Catholics and the clergy, and even even popes into that category, it's outrageous in in terms of the Catholic faith, you know. But yeah, it's become that way now because we have this division. Uh, as to uh, the radical, um, the radical modernists and the the less radical modernists who look relatively conservative, like Benedict XVI. But we see that they contradict themselves. They go from one thing to another. They can say one day they can say something very pious and very Catholic sounding, and within the week they're saying something outrageously impious and uh, very offensive to the faith. And the conservatives, the conservatives among the modernists all hold up the, the, the Catholic-sounding thing and wave that and say, oh, look, he's on our side. And then the, uh, the more radical modernists in the Novus Ordo Church, you know, wait, and they get an, a statement that is enough to make a, you know, a Catholic blanch, uh, you know, would turn pale. And, and, and they wave that and say, oh, no, no, look, he's on our side. And we see this, this back and forth going on continually since John the 23rd. Uh, especially with John Paul II, we saw a lot of that. You know, one time, I mean, he, he would he'd appear with the rosary and say something wonderful about the rosary, about the Blessed Mother, and 
But then a week you'd say something about hell being kind of basically a frame of mind or a state of mind. Uh, but you'd leave open the question of whether it's any more than that. You know, you wouldn't answer that question. You just raise the question. So um, this is what modernism does. It, it is it is a vortex of confusion. It's designed to be that, and it feeds off the confusion in so far as it, the confusion undermines the faith, the, the certitude and the confidence. Uh, in, in God's revelation, that this is truth. Confusion does that. Uh, it's, it's turned the church into a madhouse sometimes of um, contradictions and, uh, or even worse, sometimes just downright uh, denials mm-hmm. of the faith. Um, so, anyway, Tom, I don't know if that really addresses the first question adequately. I'm, um, but um, I, I, I'm trying to remember the terms that, that our uh, questioner used here, whether just having modernist principles excludes one from the faith and from... Um, right. You, you speak of, you speak of the, these degrees of, of modernism, but is there a certain point where they reach a, a degree where after this, okay. this certain degree of modernism, are they no longer Catholic? Can they no longer be a well, true pope? Yes, definitely. Uh, there is. And that, that's, that, that's where he was leading. Uh, at what point does he get to that? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not necessarily easy to um, yeah. identify yeah. because they may still use Catholic terminology. And then you've got to get into the question where you ask, well, what do you mean when you say this? What do you mean by faith? What do you mean by sacrament? What do you mean by grace? You know? And you have to get their own little modernist dictionary out, you know. <clears throat> but again, you know, this is a progressive sort of thing. It's a progressive deterioration. It's a progressive poisoning of the intellect, especially of the intellect, <clears throat> the ability to think and to believe. There definitely does come a point where you can see where someone starts out with the principles of modernism, but perhaps a little naively, right? Uh, being swayed by modernists and all of their jargon and all of their uh, deceit. And on the other hand, the other extreme where people have taken modernists to their ultimate conclusions and you see clearly there's a, there's a massive difference between this point and that point. And where along that road they've crossed the line, it's very difficult to tell. But clearly they have. Uh, been just transformed uh, as a modernist say of Christ uh, they they disfigured they disfigured and uh, so I I I would not be able to say myself uh, that it's precisely when they say this and when they mean that that they've lost the faith so from that moment on, you know, they've crossed the, the line, you know. <coughs> there may be a lot of other dotted lines here and there, but this is the line that they crossed where they fell off the cliff. They, they've, uh, 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 whatever, <laughs> whatever, uh, passed a point of no return. But I can't really say that, you know, you point it to an individual and say, okay, this is exactly where he lost the faith when he said this. Mm-hmm. You can say, well, when he said that, it became manifest, you know. But that wasn't the point that he'd lost the faith. He'd lost the faith before that. It's just that it became manifest at that point. Father, In Francis's case, I, I certainly say it's manifest. Mm-hmm. 
What about uh, if if a pope were to um, manifest some one of the the lesser degrees of of, of modernism? Um, would that would that make his authority questionable at that point? If if he manifested even one of the, these these lesser degrees of modernism, could we say that his authority is questionable or doubtful because he could possibly be non Catholic anymore? Well, you know that's that is a good question, Tom, and I mean it, it corresponds very well to what our questioner is asking. But if you look back in the history of things, um, you see that um, you know, there was a question about. Pope Pius IX, when he was elected, was he a liberal, even whether, whether he was a Mason, okay? But it wasn't so much that he was enunciating some sort of modernist doctrine or jargon. It was what he did, the actions he took, which were had been condemned by previous popes as compromising, not the faith, but compromising the church's position and uh, putting the church in a certain danger. I mean, after all, um, Pope Pius IX was listening to uh, the Masons uh, of Italy at the time, and they were calling for him to um, grant amnesty to their uh, rabble-rousing modern uh, uh, mercenaries who had been stirring up, trying to stir up revolution in the papal states. And uh, they were apprehended doing it. much as we would apprehend terrorists today. <clears throat> they were basically uh, about that, trying to stir that up, uh, revolution in the, uh, in the Papal States. And uh, so the Masons were, had the drumbeat going for Pius IX to release them, let them all go, got them amnesty. He did. And this made him very suspect, you know, <clears throat> by Catholics. You know? They're thinking, what, what are you doing? You know, how could you do These are enemies of the faith. Uh, they, they've proven they're enemies of the church and they're going to go right back to scheming again because they won this battle. And um, this is going to en- encourage them and empower them. Uh, also, they were, they were beating the drum for him to uh, place a layperson in charge of the papal states to govern them. <clears throat> the pope was a monarch. The papal states were his kingdom, you know. And that granted him independence from civil governments run by Masons, because he, had, he was his own government, right? Not only spiritually, but temporally, having his own kingdom that he could govern, and the laws would conform to the laws of the church. And, and so <clears throat> the Masons thought that if they could sweep away the papal states and make the Pope a citizen of a nation that they would govern and whose laws they would make and enforce, the Pope would then be, be hemmed in by a thousand laws that would prevent him from uh, speaking um, uh, clearly as a Supreme Pontiff, as a Vicar of Christ. And if he did dare to deviate from the law of the land, imagine if, uh, you know, I mean, a Pope were subject to the laws of the United States of America right now with um, homosexual marriage, so-called, and so on. I mean, the clergy right now are concerned about what kind of an effect is that going to have on them when it comes down to that being enforced and them being put on the spot, you know. And uh, imagine them having control of the, of the Vicar of Christ, the Supreme Pontiff of the Catholic Church, this way. <clears throat> now, with Francis, of course, I don't, I don't think that have, there'd be any concern either way, um, um, because he seems to be a one step ahead of them in the, in the, in the revolution, in, in many ways. But uh, in any case, 
or find a way to just kind of uh, dissipate any problems, you know, finds a way to get away uh, around any, any difficulties there. Uh, justifying this and justifying that, minimizing this, minimizing that, you know. But anyway, the point is, it was by the things that Pope Pius IX did when he appointed de Rossi as the head of the papal states, the layperson, <coughs> granting amnesty to the revolutionaries, uh, the mercenaries who were trying to stir up revolution in the papal states. He did these things, and these actions um, were not really modernism. Okay, modernism is a uh, based on a philosophy, and it has uh, philosophical principles behind it and philosophical conclusions that flow from it. Um, but when someone favors the enemies of the church, of course, it does make it suspect. <clears throat> At what point would someone make an argument that uh, certain actions someone had, take, had taken would mean he was an enemy of the church himself, a plant? an infiltrator, and was seeking to um, betray the church into the hands of her enemies? Well, that's another question, you know. <clears throat> when you fast forward from uh, Leo the, uh, I'm sorry, Pius IX through Leo the Thirteenth, Leo the Thirteenth uh, reversed some policies about the revolutions going on to secularize the nations of Europe, <laughs> and he introduced the Relaymont, the Relaymont, was the approach of the church under Leo XIII that they would engage the revolution, that they would take part in the social life and civil life of the nations that had been secularized, where the church had been disenfranchised. <clears throat> and they would go along, they, they would actually, um, it, it was a kind of ecumenism in a way, you know, kind of a kind of early ecumenism, where um, <clears throat> instead of uh, uh, the resistance in the sense that we are we are uh, simply boycotting all of this, uh, secularizing, secularizing, being brought in by the Masons. And now, under Leo XIII, who was Pope for quite a while, you know, um, the policy was uh, almost like, we'll show them, we'll get involved with Catholic action, we'll get involved in, uh, yeah, we, we'll put out newspapers, we'll put out books, we'll... Uh, We'll, you know, do political work and uh, social work and all this, and we'll outdo them and beat them at their own game, almost. Um, there were those who can uh, criticize this <clears throat> and said this was actually fanning the flames of secularism and basically uh, almost endorsing it, you know, saying we can, the Catholic Church can, can live with this. You know, we're okay with this. We can, we can make this work because... Uh, we know that we will prevail, even under those circumstances. Whereas many thought, no, you're not going to prevail. You know, not if you yield in this. So again, was Pope Leo XIII introducing principles? You know, uh, he was introducing uh, ideas uh, that uh, many thought were dangerous, but I don't know that anybody ever actually accused him of introducing any modernist principles into the church life. You know? <clears throat> the same with, uh, well, you know, you had Pope Pius X elected in 1903. You had uh, um, Benedict XV who came in during the war years, World War I, the Great War. And uh, De La Chiesa was more open to the modernists. He uh, essentially fired um, uh, Cardinal Mary Del Valle, Secretary of State, 
And uh, so suddenly this, this very intense um, uh, struggle that had been initiated by St. Pius X against modernism <clears throat> and the modernists within the church, uh, well, that all kind of abated under Della Chiesa during the war years. I guess they had other things on their mind, too. <clears throat> but nonetheless, there, uh, the modernists saw more inroads, gained more inroads into positions of authority in the church. It was almost as though it was a reaction against St. Pius X's position because they thought it was just too strong. Almost as though they thought Pius X, St. Pius X, had overreacted against the problem. Whereas he was insisting it was impossible to overreact against this problem because this is so deadly to faith. He had the better view as a saint, you know. <clears throat> and we see the results of this, again, softening up process, the reaction against the reaction. Um, and then, of course, uh, Pope Pius XI, who, uh, again, he made some terrific blunders. Uh, much of the doctrine that he wrote about in his encyclicals was very, very strong and very firm. But then Pope Leo XIII, often in his encyclicals, uh, wrote very, very, very firmly you know, by, against the liberalism and the modernism of his day as it manifested itself. And yet, it's as though they could be deceived by the modernists. That's the thing. Pope Pius X was, Pius XI was seemingly deceived in a number of times into policies that he himself later bitterly regretted. For example, uh, telling the Cristeros to trust the government's efforts to work out some kind of a nice arrangement, you know, with them. <clears throat> um, he lived to, to weep over that decision and over the many martyrs who, who died because of it. But again, in principle, I, I don't know that anybody has suggested that uh, any of these popes had introduced, in principle, modernism. They just seem to be um, able to be deceived by enemies of the Church into adopting policies that were da damaging to souls and eventually, perhaps ultimately deadly to faith. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Pius XII is a big question. There are those who questioned whether he was himself infected with modernism. And um, you see there were questions raised about different things that he did, um, policies he undertook. Uh, there were contradictions, you know, in his own... In, between what he did and, and what he said. Uh, in, in encyclical condemning, as I mentioned before, archaeologism, the, the modernist idea of bringing, let's go off and, and try to ferret out the original primitive liturgy and go back to that. Well, he condemned that. <clears throat> he called it archaeologism, like you're digging up something from the past. <coughs> he said, this is, this is uh, not acceptable as Catholics, you know. Um, and he upheld, upheld the traditional liturgy. Um, against their calls to uh, jettison it in favor of for going back to some primitive forms or whatever they were dreaming up. <clears throat> but uh, at the same time then, or a little later after enunciating this, uh, this condemnation of archaeologism, the policies uh, that were adopted seemed to favor it. 
the the so-called restored right of Holy Week that came out in the early 50s is an example of the modernists' success in railroading, convincing, taking advantage of his illness, I don't know. But they produced this revised form of Holy Week liturgy, and they had already said openly that if they could succeed in, in getting that through, they could change everything. So they knew very well what they were doing um, and what their, their plans were. That's a great mystery. I mean, they're, they're, in my mind, for what it's worth, there, there are a couple of great mysteries. One of the great mysteries of mentioned before is why Pope Pius XI, strong as he was against communism and all forms of socialism, and, and brave standing in the breach there at Warsaw against the invading Bolshevik army in the, 19, in the 1920s, why did he not raise the Catholic hierarchy to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, as the Blessed Mother demanded? He didn't do that. He did virtually everything else, but he didn't do that. I don't understand that. As I, I say, I, I explained that to myself by thinking, well, if in 1907, the hierarchy was already so infected with modernism that provides that the tenth sounded the alarm. Then, in 19, you know, 20 years later, um, or a little more than 20 years later, how corrupt must it have been by that point? And perhaps the hierarchy simply would not cooperate. Perhaps Pius XI was trying desperately to get the hierarchy to cooperate. But remember uh, that when uh, Lucia said, now is the time this consecration must be made, in 1929, is when she revealed, told Pius IX, now this must be done. Um, she said that now it was necessary for the Holy Father in union with all the bishops of the world. She hadn't enunciated that condition before. So that might have been so significant that, I don't know, maybe Pius XI was trying, I'd like to think so, because I think very highly of him. Uh, I'd like to think he was making mighty efforts to do so, but there was stiff resistance within the the corrupted hierarchy, insisting we will not go along with this. I don't know, I'm speculating. And the other mystery is why Pope Pius XII would enunciate the right principles in his writings and then endorse the wrong action. <clears throat> and allow the modernists to begin their nefarious work in corrupting the, the sacred liturgy. Um, the work of the, the New Mass, the, the, the ended with the New Mass, began uh, with Pope Pius XII uh, setting up the, the Council to review the liturgy in 1948. It was under his watch that this was done. So from 1948 to 1968, it was working, humming away all that time. Well, Father, this is all, this is all very fascinating how you mentioned all of these, uh, all of these, the weaknesses of all of these popes and all that. But the amazing thing is that even throughout all of that, even with all of the, these problems that they had, that uh, our Lord still protected them and their right. and their infallible pronouncements. Yeah. Uh, our Lord still protected His Church and and He He, he excluded their human weaknesses and still yeah. permitted them to have uh, infallible pronouncements that that were yeah. perfectly in line with with the uh, Catholic Church's. And, and there teaching. are those there are those who saw the problems, but I don't think you, if you were to review that time, I don't think you'd find any or many voices that would question whether or not they were popes, right. you know, question their faith. Mm -hmm. They may question their prudence, 
um, or courage. But, you know, I don't think there are many voices, if any, that question their faith. So now when someone asks the questions like, uh, you know, at what point does one lose this? Well, I don't think anybody saw that uh, in those terms back then. One can look back from this point and say, okay, look where we've come. Now let's go back and retrace our steps and find out where we went wrong and where we could have said, aha, that's where he became, you know, an anti-pope or a non-pope, or that's where he lost the faith. It's difficult to do. Um, I mean, it not, it not only has to happen, but it has to become manifested. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are those, even with Francis today, after all he's, he's said and done, who, who still insist, well, it's not that clear yet. It's not, it's not at that point yet. We can't say this yet. It's like they're constantly adjusting the standard because they're, they're afraid of ever allowing it to get to that point where they have to say, well, yeah, you're right, there's a problem here. Uh, he might not be the Pope. He might not have the faith. It's beginning to look that way. They just don't even want to face that question. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Father, when we come to Francis now, and there's this question of state of Vicantism <coughs> raised, uh, we had a viewer write in and ask if, if Francis has spoken ex cathedra at any time during his papacy, and it seems that... that uh, that, that this could could seriously impact the, the state of Vicantis position, that this idea of, of Francis speaking, because if he were to speak some kind of heresy ex cathedra, would that make him manifestly an anti-pope? Well, one could argue that he can't speak ex cathedra because he doesn't believe in the cathedra. Um, That's a good point. What I mean is uh, he doesn't really believe in, in the papal... Uh, office as Catholics know it to be, as the Church defines it to be. Uh, he made that very clear, and I've mentioned this before, after the uh, the ordinary synod on the family, he spoke about the role of the Pope, and notably himself, and when he wants to set up a synodal church, a church that is run by synods, and uh, that he's basically, uh, essentially, if I can boil it down, uh, for those who weren't following the previous uh, talks here, he, he looks at, at uh, all of these questions and matters of Catholic teaching uh, coming, uh, come to, coming to fruition this way. He's looking at this kind of procedure or this protocol being followed. <clears throat> there will be these synods called. Uh, the lay people are going to be summoned, uh, going to be selected to come and explain their experiences to the bishops. The bishops are going to meet in the synod. They're going to listen to the laymen who are drawn from various walks of life in different areas of the world, and they're going to explain what they're experiencing in their faith at the time. The bishops then are going to sort of be the interpreters of this, the experience of the lay people and what they're, they're experiencing about God and, 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 their, and faith now. The bishops are going to be the interpreters. Uh, they're going to discuss this among themselves. They're going to draft then uh, uh, some kind of documents for Francis to examine. And then what Francis is going to do, and what a Novus Ordo Pope does, is he, he formulates that into statements that then can be promulgated the, for the church to accept. So he's, he's the formulator, uh, the bishops are the, like the interpreters, 
And the actual ones who, who, are, who are having the faith experience, as the modernists would say, are the lay people who are living their modern man. Okay? They are the ones who are the chosen voices of modern man to explain to the bishops where the modern concept of God is right now in the way they're living. And, uh, I mean, essentially this is what Francis was doing when he was, uh, he was already putting this into practice with his council, with his uh, synods. <coughs> Extraordinary synod of the family, the ordinary synod of the family. I mean, they were bringing in lay people from around. They were talking about how they were living their faith and the problems they were having with chastity and celibacy and the problems they were having with, uh, with uh, being faithful in marriage and, and, and problems they were having in adultery and so on. Talking about all these other different things that they were going through. And the bishops are supposed to discern from what they said uh, what the modern experience of God and God's law and God's will is, you know. <clears throat> so that now they can send it up to Francis and have him formulate it. <clears throat> well, he wrote a Maurice Laetitia. That's, that's a perfect example of Francis formulating, right? <clears throat> but the modernist idea is that God is who modern man at any moment experiences him to be. Because it's an evolutionary thing. Uh, all faith is a matter of experiencing the divine. Individuals experience the divine. And um, the idea of the modernists is that this is evolving toward a kind of coalescence where it's all going to come together into a single hum human experience, one, one world humanity experiencing, all having the same experience of the divine, and that will be the, the, for the, the one world faith. That will be the foundation of the one world religion. That's what ecumenism is about. Ecumenism is trying to shed dogmas, these, these hard, fast, calcified uh, truths, you know, that, that aren't evolving. They've got to go to allow the evolutionary process to allow modern man, and it didn't matter whether you were modern man in the year 0 BC, or 0 AD, well, at 0, <laughs> let's put it that way, it didn't matter <coughs> whether you were modern man at the time, they had their experience of God then, or modern man uh, in 1000 AD, right? Modern man at that time had experience of God, they were all going through their personal experience of God, but they evolved beyond that. Uh, to the Lutheran, the times of Luther, okay? Then that experience of God began to be introduced. Luther had experience of God that he, he unleashed on the world, you know? And um, all great religious leaders in the modernist mind had really um, uh, unique and marvelous, deep, profound experiences of God, and they were all true. I keep using the word God, the, the modernist, the hypermodernist is the, the, the divine because they don't want to prejudice you with the idea of God as we think of him now, just the divine, whatever, you know. But this is an evolutionary process. And uh, now we have modern men, okay? For the moment, they are modern men, okay? hundred years from now, they won't be. <laughs> They'll be different modern men. But now we have modern men. And the modern world is experiencing God in its own way. And that is who God is now. And a hundred years from now, that will not be the same, because we will have evolved beyond that in our experience of God. See? And um, the, the object of all of this is uh, through 
the ecumenical outreach to share each other's experiences so much so that the differences in those experiences fade. And people abandon the, the ironclad dogmas of the past and let them go in favor of the common experience so that finally all mankind will share the common experience of God, be united in one faith experience, one faith, one faith begetting one religion. And you think about this, this is perfect for the, the coming of an Antichrist when all mankind will have this faith experience of the God who will be represented by the Antichrist. He'll be, he'll be the quintessential, the apotheosis of what modern man at that time will worship. He'll step onto the stage and all mankind will recognize him. Yes, he is the one who fulfills our dreams and our experiences of the divine. It's kind of scary, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and this is the way Francis is taking us. This is the way all these approved religious leaders are taking us today. There are a few dissenting voices, but they can't accomplish anything unless they have the true faith. Um, the, the true Catholic faith. I mean, there, there are some Protestant voices out there. Some fundamentalist voices are arguing contrary to this, but they're, they're going to be swept away. They always have been, because they don't have any any solidity or any, any solid foundation. Protestantism was part of the process of sweeping away objective truth. And uh, they began jettisoning doctrines of faith left and right, coming out with 39 articles they could all agree on for the time, and then they started throwing those out. So what's left, you know? Um, so eventually, yes, uh, even fundamentalist Protestantism will be subsumed into this whole process. Um, and um, will find its place at the table of uh, of the one world faith. Mm -hmm. So um, the uh, I'm sorry. I, I guess perhaps getting a little off the track here, but um, I guess what I'm trying to emphasize is it is a process, mm -hmm. and that's why you know questions that have been asked here. Uh, I, I don't see can necessarily um, I can't anyway I'm not qualified to say okay exactly this moment in this process this person crossed the line mm -hmm. and I can tell you that we see the difference from here to here mm -hmm. and we say this is uh, th they broke faith yeah. along that line mm -hmm. it is absolutely manifest here mm -hmm. But Father, speaking of, of Francis and uh, the way that his, his Novus Ordo Church functions now in this bottom-up uh, democratic method now, it seems um, that, that the point I was trying to make is that it seems that some, some state of a contest uh, almost wish that Francis would make some kind of uh, ex-cathedra statement <coughs> where... Uh, in, in speaking heresy, so that that way it would be clearly manifest. We could say, okay, mm. he's obviously not the Pope because he made this ex cathedra mm. supposedly infallible statement that is uh, that is not true. But uh, well, well, Tom, you know, if you mention infallible statement, okay, uh -huh. <clears throat> it changes the the question a little bit. Okay, because um, I mean, Francis, to my knowledge, has never invoked the supreme apostolic authority of Saint Peter and Paul right. in defining a, a dogma of faith. Remember, he's against the whole idea of dogma. Yeah. Um, 
doctrine, he sees doctrine and dogma as two separate things. Because doctrine is flexible, doctrine in Francis' mind changes, evolves, dogma does not, dogma has to go. Dogma is inflexible. Mm-hmm. He's, he's railed against inflexibility. Okay? But if you talk about infallibility now, <coughs> there are times when a pope speaks which uh, the church recognizes that he speaks infallibly. Um, there, there is the primary, the principal object of, of uh, papal infallibility uh, in defining dogma as a faith. You know, the extraordinary magisterium, uh, magisterium uh, at work in functioning and expressing the faith, uh, binding the consciences of all the faithful throughout the world forever. But you have what are known as secondary objects of infallibility. And, for example, um, in, in <clears throat> promulgating a, a code of canon law to govern the church, um, the church is, is in, in her um, De Ecclesia, in her study of the church herself, in her understanding of who she is and the powers that Christ gave her, uh, is, there's, a, there's a great consensus that, that the promulgation of a code of canon law must be infallibly protected from error <clears throat> uh, because the church uh, otherwise would be binding uh, laws that are requiring uh, immoral behavior <laughs> and um, things that are evil. If the church could promulgate a law binding the faithful um, to do something that was uh, evil, contrary to the laws of God, uh, then that would undermine the church terribly. I mean, it would it would it completely destroy the whole idea of having a church that could speak with authority, with the authority of Christ, telling you this is good, this is evil. Um, there also the 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 uh, canonization of saints, a secondary object of the church's infallibility. Why? Well, again, if, if the church could use the supreme authority, and the pope could use the supreme apostolic authority to uh, to canonize a saint and hold up as an example for all, someone who is definitely in heaven, who can be invoked in heaven for their intercession, and who set the example of heroic virtue, which we are officially presented as, as a guide and a model for our own lives, <clears throat> if the church could actually <clears throat> canonize someone who was um, a sinner, someone who did not profess the faith, somebody who might actually even moment, at the moment be in hell, then clearly, I mean, this would be leading the entire church astray, leading the faithful astray. They're actually invoking a soul in hell. <laughs> You know, to intercede for them, and they're 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 taking the moral example that they set as a guide for their own lives, and it is evil, and it leads to hell. It led them to hell, you know. For example, <coughs> so you know the church through her theologians, but they proved, and uh, through her ordinary magisteriums, at least, at least that has made it very clear that these are secondary objects of the church's availability when the church. <clears throat> pronounces on these matters, she must pronounce infallibly. And so now the question is, uh, has Francis or any of these um, Novus Ordo, New Order Popes, or the Pontiffs or the, the Popes of the New Order, I mean, call them, have they uh, 
dared to speak infallibly uh, on these matters? And the answer is, they have. And uh, canonizing saints, uh, even most recently we see, well, not most recently, but recently we saw Francis canonizing John the 23rd and John Paul II. And I dare say that if you asked, uh, well, asked the, the, even the Novus Ordo people, uh, followers of Francis, the, even the most, if you, you would find the conservative ones would have their doubts and say, I don't know that John the 23rd really is in heaven. I, I question that. They questioned it before. He made the, he made the canonization. When he, when he told them he was going to do this, there were many voices that rose from the conservative Nova sort of people who said, we're very uncomfortable with this. We don't see that there's heroic virtue here. We see a lot of problems. Now, maybe they're all uh, bowing their heads and saying, well, okay, if you say so, I guess I have to call him St. John Paul II and St. John the 23rd, but I don't like it. <clears throat> but that's what people were saying when the Nova Soto Mass came out, when the new sacraments came out. They, they just kept bowing, saying, okay, I accept it, but I don't like it. And here we are. Um, but I bet you'll find that there are those in the Nova Soto who don't accept the John 23rd as a saint in heaven right now. Um, and they may want to keep their head down, keep their voices down, but they're there. Yeah, but again, you know, they're not thinking like Catholics. If they were, they would say, well... If I really have serious reason to question this, I'm really questioning whether that is the Pope, because the Church has told me that when he says this, if he's the Pope, he's infallible. He speaks infallibly. That they are necessarily implying something there. They can't escape. <clears throat> so uh, you've got all that confusion going on. But the same with the new Code of Canon Law. Uh, 1983, 1984, you know, that was the time Pope, uh, well, John Paul II came out with a new Code of Canon Law, and um, he actually sanctions in the New Code of Canon Law giving Holy Communion, or their wafer, their communion wafer, from the Novus Ordo to non-Catholics. And uh, this, this is contrary to the whole concept of what communion is, to be in communion with someone, you know. Uh, it means they have the same faith. I mean, way back in the year 160 A.D., you have St. Justin Martyr saying, we will not give the uh, Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist, to anyone unless they actually have the same faith, absolutely have the same faith as we. And here's John Paul II now in 84, saying, uh, 83, saying that, yeah, under these circumstances, you can give their Eucharist to those who don't have the same faith. He says... Well, these are the circumstances. They have to at least believe what we believe about the Holy Eucharist. Oh, <laughs> Lutherans? They don't believe what we believe about the Eucharist. I mean, most of the Novus Ordo people, I don't think, believe, you know, what Catholics believe about the Eucharist. And then uh, that they wouldn't have the possibility of going to one of their own ministers to receive the Eucharist at that time. Okay? I mean, this is nonsense. And anybody with, a, with an ounce of... Uh, of cerebral matter would would know would it think this is this is nonsense what he's saying here. So they gave uh, they gave the wafer to Bill Clinton in Africa, <clears throat> and when the the press uh, publicized this worldwide, uh, there was a a reaction against it, that, uh, probably because it was Bill Clinton, and he was such an egregious non. Well, should I say, I mean. His behavior was obviously not the type of thing that he would use as exemplary, you know. Uh, 
And there are people who, uh, you know, realize all the peccadilloes of Bill Clinton and objected to him being given the Eucharist. And the bishops' conference there uh, of that particular priest in Africa uh, began to, um, you know, make all kinds of disclaimers. Like, how, well, why would this priest do such a thing? We have no idea. You know, he stepped out of line. And then the priest said, very honestly, well, this is what I'm following the directors that you yourself have sent out. This is the gu- these are the guidelines that you told me I have to follow. Exactly. So he's, he's saying they're, bench- they're actually hypocrites. And they are. Okay, they were. They're all concerned about public opinion as well. But this Novus Ordo uh, clergyman gave Bill Clinton their, their communion wafer. But why would they be concerned? I mean, they, they, they look who else is getting their communion wafer. I mean, cross-dressers and, and so on and so forth. I mean, so, um, and pro-abortion politicians and all the rest of them. So, I mean, it's hypocritical for them to even... Um, <clears throat> try to whitewash the things that they do. They should, if, if they were honest about it, at least they would say, well, this is what we stand for, and uh, if you don't like it, that's too bad, but this, this you know, we're, we're standing on principle. But they don't. Um, so in any case, um, yes, the, the Novus Ordo hierarchy, and notably the Novus Ordo pontiffs, have in fact... Um, uh, done things that the Catholic Church has always considered to be guaranteed by infallibility due to the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ to Peter, to his apostles, to the Church. And uh, in doing so, they have done things that uh, the Church has always condemned. They have glorified things that the Church has condemned. The Church has always condemned, absolutely, under any circumstances, giving Holy Communion to anyone who's not a, uh, not a Catholic, a practicing Catholic. And um, so they are, they, are in, they are sanctioning things by uh, their authority, which the Church has always condemned. In matters that the Church would consider to be uh, protected by the charism of infallibility, if someone realizes this, if someone sees that this is the case, then someone would have to say, okay, clearly... <clears throat> When they canonized this person, they could not have been doing this infallibly with the authority of Christ. Clearly, when they brought this new provision of the Code of Canon Law in, they could not have been doing this with the guarantee of infallibility. They couldn't have been speaking with the authority of Christ. With whose authority were they speaking? It wasn't Christ's. It was their own. And when you start questioning the authority with which they're speaking, you start questioning whether they even hold the office, whether they even are bishops or popes in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Then how how could that how could that be, Father? Then where where is the Catholic Church if if this uh, if these popes these Novus Ordo popes if they are invalid, where is the Catholic Church? If they have defected from the faith mm-hmm. and therefore lost the papacy, or more likely never had it because they didn't even believe in it, as in the case of Francis, certainly the Catholic Church is precisely where she has been in times of crisis. I mean, there have been two hundred and sixty something times when the Church did not have a living pope. Times of persecution, times of confusion, and uh, there are those who still have the faith and are still practicing the faith. It's a matter of record. Go back to the, the, the catechisms. Go back to the Council of Trent. You know, the, the, the traditional Catholic people today believe what is in the catechism of the Council of Trent. They believe it entirely, right? And the catechisms that have been published since that are based on that, they believe that. Okay. 
those who are practicing the traditional faith uh, in terms of worship, uh, the traditional mass and the sacraments, I mean, they are they are the ones uh, who are holding the faith today. And uh, those who are looking to Catholic tradition to be their guide. Catholic tradition supersedes the authority of any pope. Uh, any individual pope comes and goes. I mean, um, but all popes are subject to Catholic tradition. They are the servants of Catholic tradition. They are at the service of Catholic tradition. Their very papacy is actually a function of Catholic tradition. And if they turn against tradition and they attack it, they're attacking the very foundation of their any authority they have. So uh, the Catholic Church still is very vital. I mean, there's, uh, God is still sparing us. He hasn't decided to... Uh, pull the plug up in the world yet, mercifully, so there must be some very good people who are practicing the faith and uh, and offering him, uh, you know, the faith and the hope and the charity that, that he demands. Um, the question, I think, rather is, well, if the church is in this condition right now, um, uh, how could the church be in this condition right now? I would say, well, the, the, the shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. And you might say, well, if the traditional Catholic people are the ones who are still believing and practicing the faith, why are they so divided? And I already said before that not all of them really are practicing the faith. They claim to be following tradition, but they're actually not, because they're admitting things, they're following things that the Church has always condemned. And that is not traditional. And I mentioned the Turk bishops among them, for example. Um, and, and that is why we have this disarray. But in order to remedy that, you need a reigning true Catholic pontiff. So that raises the question then, the ultimate question is, how do we get out of this mess? And the answer there is, it's something that uh, you, can't, you can't do and I can't do. I, God himself has to do this. People were asking that same question back at the time of the Great Western Schism. Uh, back in the late uh, 1300s and early 1400s, I mean, the question was, okay, we... Uh, we have, we have a, a, someone who says he's the Pope in Rome, someone else who claims to be the Pope in Avignon, and it seems as though he has a claim because he was elected by cardinals, French cardinals, who elected the Pope in Rome. <clears throat> and then the council, the council got together, having secured the uh, agreement from the, the Pope in Rome and the Pope in Avignon that they would re re retire, uh, in favor of a pope chose, chosen to reunify, and they chose John, and then the other two would not resign, so now you have three. I mean, there were certainly the Catholic people asking, how are we ever going to get out of this mess? There must have been bishops and priests and cardinals who were wondering, how are we ever going to get out of this mess? And the answer was, every time human beings took a step, they made it worse. And as a result of persevering prayer and sacrifice, God himself intervened. And actually when he did, he gave the church a very great pope. A really good pope. That's exactly what, he gave the church exactly what she needed at that moment. You know? So God alone has the answer to these things. I don't, I don't know how God can do this. And I'll tell you, even if I came up with the most fantastic plan, it would not even begin to measure up against God's plan, okay? So, even the most wonderful scheme that anyone could dream up, you know, as to how we're going to get out of this mess, it, it, it wouldn't even be a beginning in terms of uh, what God knows and what God will do. But he, he knows where this is going, and he, uh, 
And uh, we simply have to uh, follow what the church has taught us all this time, because that's what Christ has taught us all this time. Mm-hmm. Well, fair enough. I think that's a good good note <laughs> good note to end on there. Well, we didn't really get too far on your stack there. No. So. <laughs> we're, we're, I mean, some of these questions are not 25 words or less. No. <laughs> yeah, certainly not for me. No, not so, but, uh, but thanks I, for your perseverance yeah, and patience. Yeah, yeah, I think that was a uh, fantastic discussion tonight. I think uh, we all learned a lot. I know I definitely did. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you, Tom. No problem. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.